The Founding Fathers, American Revolution, our Constitution, our History, America. Thanks so much for tuning in as we discuss the people, places, events, and battles that turned 13 separate colonies into the greatest nation on earth, the United States. Welcome back, patriots. I'm your host, Ron Kern, and I am glad that you're here. So researching, studying, writing, and speaking about the American Revolution is what I love to do. And I want to thank you for allowing me to share my passion and our country's history with you. It's been a little bit longer than I wanted to get this show out, but there are indeed reasons why. As many of you know from listening to the show, I live on a 42-acre farm and ranch here in Idaho. And it's that time of year for getting plants in our garden, gearing up for the season, and the multitude of other tasks that a farm requires. My wife and I finished up our teaching for the year, so that opens a little time on Thursdays for us. And if you didn't know, my wife and I teach the U.S. Constitution and the American Revolution at a homeschool co-op, which we absolutely love to do. But we're off for the summer. Additionally... My birthday was on the 6th of June, and yesterday, my wife and I celebrated our 32nd wedding anniversary. I just can't believe that she got that old. (laughs) And me as well. Uh, You know, the old saying, uh, time flies, but man, I think that's truly an understatement for sure. So if you've been waiting for this show, I appreciate your patience, and I Not here to provide a bucket full of excuses, but I did feel that I should at least let you know why it took me a little bit longer. But, oh, also, some pretty cool news. As many of you know, I have been a member of the Sons of the American Revolution for years, and last month I was voted in as the president of the Idaho Society Sons of the American Revolution. It is with a great honor that I took that position And, uh, you know, if you're wanting to find out if you may have had an ancestor who fought in the Revolutionary War and how you can become part of the Sons of the American Revolution, I have a link on my website under resources, which will guide you through that process. I also have a link uh, for the same process, but for the Daughters of the American Revolution. So check that out under resources. Our last show was a bonus episode where I discussed the crazy relationship between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, and they were truly frenemies, and how their lives ended is rather remarkable. So hopefully you have uh, had, a, had a minute to listen to that show, which was episode number 24. Our last timeline episode was number 23, and that is where I talked about the first battles of the war. Lexington and Concord. I also walked you through a visual experience, and I really hope that you had time to listen to that one. I think in doing so, you will have a much better understanding and perhaps appreciation of what it may have felt like to be in their shoes, at least as close as I could describe it for you. But at the end of that show, the British had almost arrived back to Boston after being shot at constantly on their march back from the battles of Lexington and Concord. 
I mentioned many historical names along the bloody road, which was the path they took from Concord back to Boston, but I saved the last battle for this episode, which is the Battle of Monotomy, which is in current-day Arlington, and even more specifically, Massachusetts Avenue. This battle is where I'm going to pick up from. I wanted to include the Siege of Boston and Fort Ticonderoga, but there's just too much to include with those topics, so those will be broken down in future episodes. I don't want to just gloss over events that normally are summarized in a few sentences, as to me they are just too important and each have fascinating stories and people involved that I feel need to be heard and must be told. So with that said, we have lots of great stuff in this show, so let's go ahead and get started with the Battle of Monotomy. So this battle is also known as the Battle of Arlington, or the Battle of the Heights, and it took place on the same day of Lexington and Concord, which is April 19th, 1775. Now, it was part of the larger battles of Lexington and Concord, which actually marked the beginning of the Revolutionary War, and this battle is where by far the most deadly, brutal, bloodiest, and fiercest fighting took place along the entire retreat. Here the fighting became oftentimes hand-to-hand, and it was brutal. So the British being harassed for miles, the soldiers began to go house-to-house, clearing families from the buildings along the road. The British troops were exhausted from all of their earlier engagements, and they were taken by surprise and they suffered heavy casualties. One of the most amazing stories to come out of the Battle of Monotomy is that of Samuel Whitmore. Whitmore was a 78-year-old colonial farmer, and when he heard about the fighting, he didn't hesitate. He grabbed his musket and joined the fray. 78 years old, and he never even had a question, man. He grabbed his musket and, and was ready to go. On the north side of the road, the British came across Whitmore. Whitmore had a musket, two pistols, and a saber for his defense. He was actually crouched behind a stone wall behind Cooper's Tavern, at the junction of the road to Medford when flankers from the 47th Regiment came upon him. Whitmore killed one with his musket and emptied both pistols at the rest, killing or wounding at least three British soldiers. After defending himself, Whitmore was shot in the face. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, he was then bayoneted not once, five times, or even ten But the British soldiers bayoneted him 13 times, and Whitmore was left for dead in a pool of blood. Nobody could survive that brutal attack back then or even today, but amazingly, Whitmore not only survived, but he lived until he was 98 years old, becoming a living legend in his own time. Another interesting fact about the Battle of Monotomy is that It was fought in a very heavy populated area. The colonists took full advantage of their knowledge of the terrain, and as they did throughout the war, they fought from behind walls, fences, and they even uh, went into uh, outbuildings and homes and fired from within. So they took advantage of all of the terrain, including homes. And this led to some pretty unusual tactics, such as 
The British troops started setting fire to buildings to flush out the colonists, and it also resulted in some collateral damage where several civilian casualties took place. The Battle of Monotomy was a significant engagement during the American Revolutionary War. It demonstrated that the colonists' ability to stand up to the British troops, and it highlighted the importance of guerrilla tactics and the knowledge of the terrain. This single battle also accounted for almost half of the casualties of the entire day's events, and that included Lexington, Concord, and even the march back to Boston. So this battle was brutal, to say the least. Now, I wanted to find out more about a guy who who could survive being shot in the face and stabbed, bayoneted 13 times, and As you may have already figured, I did some more digging and research. It's such an unbelievable story. If there weren't so many eyewitness accounts, it would would probably be pretty hard to believe. But I wanted to find out a little bit more about this guy. Like, how does one at 78 years old say, yeah, I'm in, let's go. And how did he survive and and all of that? So I, I wanted to provide a little bit of a short bio of him. So here it goes. Samuel Whitmore was born on July 27, 1696, in Charlestown, Massachusetts Bay Colony, which now is part of Boston. He was a descendant of Richard Whitmore, who was one of the very first settlers of Charleston in the early 1630s. Whitmore was a man of remarkable physical strength and was said to be over six feet tall, which was much taller than the average height back then for sure, and if you were over six feet tall back then, you literally were, were considered a giant. Uh, many people were called giants if you were over six feet tall. He was married to his first wife, Hannah, who died in 1735. And after her death, he married his second wife, Elizabeth. And together, he and Elizabeth had three kids. During the French and Indian War, Whitmore fought as a member of Rogers Rangers, a specialized force of colonial soldiers who conducted guerrilla operations against the French and their Native American allies. He served under the command of Robert Rogers, a legendary frontiersman and military leader. Now I kind of get it, right? Okay, how did this guy survive? How did this guy get involved at 78? And Well, if you were part of Robert Rogers, uh, you were kind of kind of like pretty pretty hardcore. I, I guess if there's a comparison, I'd, I'd say Navy SEALs or the Green Berets. Um, and if you've ever watched the series Turn, you know about Robert Rogers. And to be a part of this group, as Whitmore was, gives us a lot more insight on what kind of man he was. You had to be tough, brave, courageous, and not some of the time, all of the time. So that is pretty, uh, pretty impressive. And his remarkable, Whitmore's remarkable resilience and strength earned him the nickname of the American Rambo in modern times. He died on February 2nd, 1793 in Arlington, Massachusetts, and is buried in the old burial ground in Arlington with a headstone that bears the inscription, sacred to the memory of Samuel Whitmore Esquire, who died February 2nd, 1793, age 98. He was a brave officer in the Army of the Colonies in the Old French War, was shot, bayoneted, 
beaten and left for dead, but recovered and lived to a good old age, an example of firmness and fortitude. So that is what is on his headstone in Massachusetts. Whitmore's bravery and determination to fight for his country, and let's not forget he was almost 80 years old, has become an inspiration to generations of Americans. And I personally think his story is just so incredible. It's a, it's a testament to the strength and resilience of the American spirit. And I hope that our country gets back to this kind of spirit rather than the direction that it seems to be going. I mean, men back then were tough. Men today, mm, questionable. I don't want you to learn about the people, places, battles, and events regarding the American Revolution. I want you to experience them. My fifth great-grandfather, Peter Kern, lived in Pennsylvania and fought in the Revolutionary War. He fought in the Battle of Long Island and other battles, so the connection to this war is a personal one. Because of his courage, bravery, and sacrifice, his decision to pick up a musket and fight for freedom allows me to be a proud member of the Sons of the American Revolution, an organization with just 33,000 members. My father served in the Navy, as did I, and I believe 100% in this country and the United States Constitution, regardless of how crazy our country seems to be right now. It's important to understand how our country came to be and know the true and actual history behind the people who created it. The American Revolution is my passion, described by my family and friends more appropriately as my addiction and, well, I can't disagree. For each show, I spend countless hours researching, reading diaries and journals from people of the era, scouring documents from countless sources, calling and searching city, state, and federal archives, digging deep to uncover things that most of us haven't even heard about. Of course, this may include the many historic places that I've been to personally. Then it's all put together, recorded, and published, making it available worldwide. Through my words, descriptions, and show notes, my goal is to have you be there, feel what they felt, literally have an understanding of what was going on with the topic of each show. As I tell my students, it's not about memorizing dates and timelines, but rather understanding the journey and the story of how our country came into existence and those involved in the process, both known and the many, many that nobody has ever heard of. If you don't hear passion in my voice, if you can't put yourself in the situation that I'm talking about, and if you don't have a good visual picture in your mind, that means I haven't done my job very well and I missed my goal with that podcast. I'm sure I'm going to fall short from time to time and to fill those gaps, I have show notes for every single episode. These include links, videos, photos, paintings, and a large variety of additional resources and educational information that you can explore. I've had several listeners tell me that they like to go through the show notes first and then listen to the episode. I'm pretty confident you know what method works best for you. I'm just glad that you're here. There's several ways that you can support my show. First, tell somebody about it. There's nothing better than word of mouth. You can also financially sponsor the show, which can be found in the footer section or the bottom part of my website. Just click it, choose any amount, and that's how that works. 
I'd love nothing more than to have a personal sponsor than the ones that you currently hear now. And lastly, I would sincerely appreciate you leaving a review. It just takes a couple minutes, if that, and the more reviews a podcast receives, the more likely that it will be found. And in these trying times in our country, the more people that can learn our founding and this country's history, the better. Thank you so much for tuning in. So, now that the last battle has taken place on the British march back to Boston, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and cover the Second Continental Congress, because we need to know why it was formed and why they met again, and I will only cover one of the major decisions that Congress made early on. But you're going to hear a lot more in future shows about the Second Continental Congress. The Second Continental Congress was formed in response to the events of Lexington and Concord, and it was originally created in 1774, which I covered in great detail, and that's in episode 20, and they addressed the grievances of the American colonies against the British rule. And if you listen to episode 20, you know that the First Continental Congress had been quite successful in its efforts to boycott British goods and make a pretty good dent, as it were, to the British, but it wasn't enough to prevent the outbreak of war. Now, the Second Continental Congress consisted of delegates from all 13 colonies, and they met in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They were tasked with coordinating the defense of the colonies against the British and deciding on a course of action for the future. So the Second Continental Congress, as was the First Continental Congress, it was filled with some of the most important and influential figures of the entire American Revolution. Just a few uh, that were there is John Hancock. He was the president of the Congress. Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and a slew of others. Now, this Congress made several major decisions that shaped the course of the American Revolution, and for that matter, the entire future of the United States. Today, I'm only going to cover one of those decisions, and that took place on June 15th, 1775, which wasn't too long after the Battles of Lexington and Concord. Also, it's almost 248 years to the day that this took place. So I didn't plan that. It just happened to be, so it was kind of cool. But in my opinion, it was a glorious June day when the Congress met because That is the day that Congress appointed George Washington as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. And his leadership was, well, critical is an understatement, Uh, but his leadership was critical to the success of the American Revolution. If you've watched the HBO uh, special series, uh, John Adams, they do a very, very good job of showing and depicting how George Washington was appointed. As they were sitting at this table, John Hancock knew that he was going to be the one to be nominated, and he was going to be in charge of the Continental Army. So when they started talking about who was going to be and they were taking nominations, Does anybody out there know who nominated George Washington to be the commander-in-chief? None other 
than John Adams. So when John Adams uh, started to talk about only one person could do this, I should have got the exact quotes, but uh, he basically was talking about, we have to have an amazing man. We have to have an incredible leader. And of course, every descriptive word John Adams said, John Hancock just kind of, you know, got taller and taller in his seat with the expectation of hearing his name. And when John Adams said George Washington, John Hancock apparently looked like a child that had just dropped an ice cream cone. I mean, he was devastated uh, because he thought, you know, John, John Adams was a pretty good close associate with him. And who else in the world is going to, you know, take this job seriously and who has experience? And John Hancock was not the guy. And Congress all agreed, George Washington. There's been a lot of discussion on like, did, John, did George Washington really want it? Uh, did he, um, was it just for show? Um, you know, he, George Washington did show up uh, wearing the military uniform uh, that he wore in the French and Indian War. Uh, so I think George Washington wanted it, but, you know, he didn't want to, he didn't want to come across like, I'm the only guy for the job because Washington was just far too humble for that. But then again, if you're showing up to the Second Continental Congress, knowing that a military leader is going to be chosen and you keep showing up every day in your military uniform, you know, I think it's pretty pretty obvious that George Washington really wanted it. But, you know, we can't forget that he was selected over John Hancock and others because he did have previous military experience and the hope that a leader from Virginia, the biggest colony at the time, New York and Virginia certainly were the largest, that if the leader was from Virginia... That would really help unite the colonies in what was going to be an uphill battle, right? You're going to be fighting the biggest and best army in the world. So uh, Washington left for Massachusetts uh, shortly, uh, within a few days actually, of receiving his commission and assumed command of the entire Continental Army in Cambridge on July 3rd, 1775. So George Washington, uh, after being nominated, gave a speech to the Congress accepting the commission, and he requested that he would do so and not receive a salary for his service and only ask that his expenses that he paid during the war would be reimbursed at the end of the war. He also said that he wasn't sure that his abilities were enough or he was capable enough, but he did, in fact, take the, the position. John Adams wrote to his amazing wife, Abigail, shortly thereafter, and John Adams said, I can now inform you that the Congress has made choice of the modest and virtuous, the amiable, generous, and brave George Washington to be the general of the American army, and that he is to repair as soon as possible to the camp before Boston. What did George Washington say to his wife, Martha? He said, 
It has been determined in Congress that the whole army raised for the defense of the American cause shall be put under my care and that it is necessary for me to proceed immediately to Boston to take upon me the command of it. You may believe me, my dear Patsy, when I assure you in the most solemn manner that so far from seeking this appointment, I have used every endeavor in my power to avoid it. So I think there he is being quite modest, saying, you know, I'm not sure what I got myself into. Um, but him using every endeavor to avoid it, uh, I think that was more for uh, history. Uh, because, again, and I don't know, this is just my personal opinion, but if you really don't want the job to be a military commander, then you don't show up and be present every day at the Congress, and nor do you show up in your military uniform. So again, I think he really wanted it, but I, I also believe that he really wasn't sure what he was getting himself into. I mean, we're talking about being in charge of an army that really wasn't even in existence yet. You're going to be pulling militias and Minutemen and other people together from all colonies. And remember back then, colonies, you know, if you lived in Virginia, they called it the country, my country of Virginia. If you lived in Massachusetts, it was my country of Massachusetts. It was very rare that people would travel to two, three, four, five uh, other colonies. So there, there was some, as we will find out, some animosity between the colonies uh, from different colonies. And that certainly rears its ugly head when George Washington is trying to take control and lead a newly formed army. But nonetheless, it was one of the best days in history as far as I'm concerned. It was, in my opinion, hands down, the best decision, uh, the best person for the job. And it's easier now to look back on history because we know the outcome, right? We, we can see the end result. Uh, but even back then, he was a logical man for the, for the job. And thankfully, uh, Congress chose the right man for the job. And I think that is a real good stopping point for now. Uh, next show, we're going to be covering the Siege of Boston and see exactly how George Washington does as the commander in charge of the Continental Army. Thanks for listening and hope that you tune in next time with us here at the Patriot Power Podcast. Make sure that you hit subscribe so you'll get notified when our new episodes are available for you. And we hope that you check out our websites, which include our show notes, links, documents, and more at PatriotPowerPodcast.com or ILoveGeorgeWashington.com. Until next time, hope that you and your family have a blessed week. And remember, be safe and tell a veteran thanks for their service.